left Twin Geeks 184 um, in lieu of a regular episode. Uh, uh, Vaughn came on. Uh, welcome back to Critically Considered, uh, Vaughn. How are you doing? <laughs> Hello, Calvin. It's good to be back. I'm here for some some brand integration, <laughs> some some cross promotion here. Yeah, uh, yeah. You have a new another new podcast on the on the extended network here. Yeah, I do. So uh, if you haven't heard, Jack and I have started a new podcast all about action cinema. It's called Throw Down an Action Cinema Podcast. You can find it on just about any platform you can imagine. I think at this point, we've got it pretty much everywhere. Mm. Uh, two episodes out at the time of recording this. I think we'll have a third out by the time this releases. So you can come and listen to Jack and I talk about The Night Comes for Us or Mechanical Violator Kiter or Avengement, or many other things in future episodes. I like specificity in podcasts. What do you think like makes you guys a specific listen? Why should someone come to that show? Well, Jack and I just watch a ton of action and love action, and it's, uh, it's an excuse for us to get together and share our love of the genre and just kind of chat about what makes action such a special genre and what makes it, everything about it so great. We get to just kind of chat and have a great time talking about great movies what started your action arc as you've called it that's true it even did i do even have my my action arc tag on letterbox um that's a good question i don't know what like one specific thing really kicked it is off it like accumulation of... of like you and ben like watching yeah. some badass movies and being like this is my vibe now is, that definitely that was that was kind of the the recent arc was was watching some action some kind of low budget action stuff with Ben and then just kind of being like, all right, I should check out more of this. And then of course there was a lot of uh, Hong Kong influence from Jack and started to go in that direction a little bit. And then it just kind of, now it's spiraled out into getting as much as I can in at all times. I think like parameters are like useful, but it doesn't seem like you guys are going to like narrow it in on just like stuff that people haven't seen. You're, you're also going to do some of like the, the formative like action movies. Yeah. Like I want to kind of, for- yeah definitely definitely going to talk about the expendables franchise um yeah i don't want to like box ourselves in too much because i do like being able to share new stuff with people and talk about things that people haven't seen and suggest it and say you should check this out because it's absolutely worth seeing but it's also worth talking about the big stuff and it's good to have that kind of entry point where people can can come on and say well i have seen this because it's a, a big tentpole action film and that stuff's uh, just as worth talking about as the cool indie stuff we love. You have one of the most eclectic letterbox with a, uh, some of the stranger films I've ever seen. Why? <laughs> um, I just, I don't know. I just, I, I think at a certain point, I just kind of gave up on the the whole canon idea and just decided to go for whatever looked like the most interesting thing to watch on any given day. I think uh, it's kind of like a, it's very much the uh, the diary of a person with ADHD is kind of how it looks <laughs> going through my diary. It's just kind of whatever fits the mood on any given day. The and thing is, always... I build I build watch lists and then I don't watch what's in the watch list, even like oh, this four months. Yeah. yeah, like I plan. I did good this year, like relative to how I've done in the past, where I lined up like forty movies last year and watched like ten of the ones <laughs> that I put. It's down. very hard to stick to. Yeah. Well, because everyone else is watching horror movies and it looks awesome and you like I, I want to join their group watches and I want to like find out yeah. what they're doing and be part of a conversation then I don't like end up watching what I wanted you know well yeah uh, that's that's kind of what I what I love and that's kind of how it always ends up is that you can set a certain number of things or a certain list of things to say I want to look at all these and I want to watch all these but 
it's so easy to even if you watch the first one and if it's something you really connect to then it's like well now i want to start going down this path and you might start exploring you know the the star of that film or the director and then you just go down all these different ways and i think that's that's just really what i love about letterboxd is like you can find all these different paths to go down and all these different little adventures you can go on and and discovering new things there's a lot of podcasts in this world uh do you think do you think we need more yeah, we need I don't know why I'm interviewing you this morning. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's <laughs> Do working out. We need more podcasts. Well, we need more podcasts starring me and Jack specifically. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm excited to like kind of get into the ones that you've covered because I don't know them that well. Um, I haven't even seen Throwdown, which seems like the basis for what I need to do to be able to access. Yes, show. absolutely. Throwdown is is a very great watch, as are all Johnny Two movies, as I've discovered so far. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, exciting stuff. And uh, as for like a award season, how are you prepping? Are you are you ready? Are you ready to uh, go through every category today? And uh, I don't. <laughs> is that is it, we're we're quickly shifting the the podcast <laughs> to a completely different topic. Um, I don't feel too ready this year, to be honest. So far, I feel like I've been I've been missing a lot because I've been in such an action mode. I've been missing a lot of new releases, but. I'll have to get through uh, quite a lot once the uh, the FYC stuff starts rolling in. Have you heard of Scorsese? One of the uh, prominent Letterbox uh, users made yeah. a movie this year. Yeah, um, I just dis- just discovered him the other day, so I think I'll check out his new three and a half hour movie soon. Here, <laughs> sure, <laughs> uh, that's exciting. That it is almost award season, and you shouldn't be plugged in at this point. This is when they release movies. These that's next true. Two yeah. months, like they. They put out five movies ahead of this that will even play in these things like, right. you know, like Past Lives and Barbie Oppenheimer. You know, it's a short list. Like uh, once like The Killers is yeah. out and Killer of the Flower Moon and uh, Poor Things. I feel, I feel like this year especially has been very um, like festival heavy. Like I've just been <laughs> seeing things like even just at the very early on in the year that I'm like, oh, that looks very interesting. And then it's cycled through every festival on the planet and I'm just like waiting to see it. And it's going to be, I've got to cram it all into the last two months of the year. Even like the, the lead up has felt really long this year. Yeah, I exactly. don't know why, but like uh, the taste of things I've been like following since Sundance and like that Miyazaki, we were all like, oh, we're not going to find out anything about this movie. Like just like the Japanese release. And then, <laughs> then it's yeah. been 10 months. So inevitably we've seen yeah screenshots and, right uh, things play in so many different places at so many different times and yeah. now it seems like everyone except me has seen it even though i know that's just because i'm in a very <laughs> tight-knit community of people who are seeking these things out that's the other problem i think we get maybe like a, a you have seen more than even like most of like oh certainly Seattle <laughs> membership like you have seen more than you know like 10 times more than the average person i mean right. more than that right like if the average person goes to the movies two or three times a year I think we're okay. Yeah, I, I do. I I think of kind of my parents' watch habits a lot of the time. I think they've been to the theater maybe three or four times this year. And I'm like, yeah, I think I've, <laughs> me seeing 75 movies released this year, I think I'm I'm doing okay. See, my parents haven't been once. Like, I realize there are like people that, that like movies that don't even go to movies. Right. It's like, a, I, we're, we're in so deep that it's kind of like a, yeah. <laughs> expectations of self are really just blown out, you know, um, I think because I like try to cover so many things like I'm even if I haven't written I've pretty much everything for the year that I watch is because I thought I should cover it like uh 
you right. have to at least give an effort at it, right? Like it's like yeah, exactly. I I didn't write all 150 reviews, but you know maybe I wrote 60 of them, and those are the ones that I had like a thesis for, or like a, I could outline a review and then write something quickly. Uh, yeah, I feel like it's it's all of it's in service of something. I feel like it's all like I'm I'm trying to get the the most comprehensive idea I can of what I can vote for in all these different categories and what's uh, potentially deserving. Yeah, and uh, we haven't even really received like uh, much as like screener wise yet. I think it's like Drift, I think I've so gotten our... one, like okay, <laughs> very very maybe two. I think a a couple, but definitely not very much so far. I've always just wanted them to send them throughout the year. I I feel like it having them all in yeah, three months definitely. means like half of them will not get watched for sure, and I don't know what half, but uh. And that's only because I've seen so much. Like, I don't need to watch most of them right. that come to me. Like, I, I went to SIF. Um, I I do the festivals online. Uh, I'm okay. You know, I've seen enough to fill out categories. Uh, but uh, I think all that's just to say we don't really need to continue the critically considered show. Because uh, yeah. uh, I, think, I think we're so much in that work at right. that time that creating extra work just seems like a barrier, actually. Um yeah, it's it's a stressful time of the year, even before you get to the the movie side of it. And then the movie side of it is an additional like, got to get as much done as possible. And then it's like, okay, now we have to think about creating a show every week on top of that. And it's a it's a lot. Actually, just thinking about like how it went, like I'm not that locked in by by even the end of the process. Like I haven't seen everything I thought I would even by the right. end. So. You start at, you know, several weeks before you get to the voting point and throughout the whole thing, you're watching different things. So even when you start it, even two or three weeks later, you've already got different ideas because you've <laughs> already watched more things and, and gotten new input on what you could consider. It was like each week of the show became, I did like doing the show. I always like doing any show with you, but it's kind of like a each week was just what two, two or three movies did each of us see that week, right. and we were just kind of like, "Yeah, let's fit those into categories." Or it was me saying, "Like every week, you need to see After Sun," and then like on the sixth week, be like, "Maybe <laughs> it I will." Way <laughs> too long to watch it, and so, I was I regretted taking so long because it is definitely now one of my favorites of last year. But but you see, that's like an inflated pressure that we didn't need to create, yeah, like exactly. because you were going to watch After Sun, and now we have a show where I have to ask you six times, "Have you seen it?" Which did need to happen right because it needed to be in all those categories and i think you know that now but um absolutely it just doesn't make sense because we're two people to kind of fill those categories yeah in. uh you know like maybe i mean there's potential that you like come on and we could like talk about how the award season went for seattle film critic society and like a maybe like a, a separate episode like one of these just like a one-off just be like Here's yeah more of just us, a, you know? a recap and and things we liked rather than trying to to comprehensively cover everything i think more about it like i i don't want to create a public document of like my list as it's changing right. too you know <laughs> because so many things change yeah. after four weeks of that show that like the first three episodes aren't valid they're not true uh, yeah exactly <laughs> so uh a lot of production problems with that but i i did love doing the show and we you know will find ways to have you on whenever yeah uh, it's always always worth trying new stuff we tried it and we you know we learned a lot from that and it's, <laughs> it's always worth doing i think it's like the talk shows when they have like a, a guest like absent like a guest doesn't show up to the show and i'm like oh oh Vaughn, i need you to come on and fill <laughs> in for this uh 
that that's what uh this segment you're like the animal performer of like the talk show uh circuit, right? like, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to fill that role i'm always around <laughs> i can i can come on and talk about anything because you watch such interesting movies too that i feel like we could just like slot you into like whichever conversation and uh we could show up on the same night and talk about a John Carpenter movie and both be wearing Halloween shirts. <laughs> exactly. Yes, we are. We Completely unintentionally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not coordinated at all. Mine says the carving because I was carving pumpkins and watching a John Carpenter movie today. And uh, yeah, I just I just thought we're gonna talk about uh, John Carpenter tonight, so I should I should throw my Halloween shirt on. And this um, this the idea for this was very spontaneous because <laughs> I had no idea that you hadn't even seen assault on precinct 13 i don't think i did either I, I think we had that <laughs> bot that matt designed and people put right. things up and i'm like oh yeah i saw i saw that one for sure and i looked down the list i'm like where am i you know it's like <laughs> i thought i was like one of the john carpenter guys but i don't you know this is such early work that i think it can yeah. get overlooked in the canon of carpenter like we've covered you know this and that for carpenter we've done right. you know maybe the thing and and the halloween and uh people talk about even the fog or uh, they talk about Dark Star because it's like the origin of, of yeah. the Carpenter, right? But uh, when I keep thinking about like what actually becomes the first John Carpenter movie, that's like a Dan O'Bannon movie, right? Like that's mm-hmm. like yeah, more than Carpenter, the authorial voice is like closer to like Alien or something. It's it's a different yeah, definitely. Movie. And yeah, Dark Star is such a. I mean, it's very much a, a debut. It's very cheap, and it is. It's definitely you're right. It's more an O'Bannon film than it is a. A carpenter film he hasn't quite found his his footing yet but then you move on to this and it's just like oh this is 100 carpenter i think he found how to do it cheap in the right way this time like he got a little bit more budget right and he was just like yeah the producers came to him they're like could you make this for under or like around a hundred thousand and we'll give you full creative control and right. that's just like that doesn't really happen anymore where people just throw money and they're like just go unless it's a streamer you know like yeah which is a huge bummer because it's yeah it's great when you get that but yeah it's when you don't have the uh the constraints of we have to make strange sci-fi creatures and let's make it out of a beach ball because <laughs> it's all we can afford it's uh when you've just got a grounded uh kind of urban western you can do whatever you want so this is like the Siege Western, which is like Rio Bravo, Howard Hawks, which is John Carpenter's hero. And he always like lists as like his main like cinematic inspiration. And uh, of course, like Hawks did the original The Thing. And you could kind of find the DNA even in Halloween, even when he gets kind of spooky, like the way he builds right. tension out and the way he works from characters and drama first uh, are very like Hawksian devices and how people talk and how he stages and blocks the scene. Are, are very ox driven ideas yeah yeah i was definitely interested to hear your thoughts on the the western influence of it as not a western guy myself i i definitely and i know assault on precinct 13 has those influences for sure but i always see it a lot more as a as a night of the living dead riff um which is kind of a cross between those two things but that's always kind of what i've got in mind when i'm watching it yeah, to me, it's almost like, I mean, that's what that's what it is, right? It's like Night of the Living Dead x Rio Bravo. But right. I think it's more that he's doing Night of the Living Dead in the style of Howard Hawks. Like, he's adapting that siege idea with, uh, you know, the tension is almost more horror-like than... Oh, definitely. Like, yeah. uh, I mean, he can make suspense the way that Hawks does, but he almost frames it almost more like uh, Romero or something. It's different. Yeah, it is. He definitely has that 
that horror DNA in there from, even though this is definitely far from being straight horror, there's a lot of, of horror elements here. And he definitely pulls the, um, a lot of that atmosphere from the Romero stuff, because it is very much like this, just unrelenting, like unthinking force that is coming after this building. Which is in both. I think, I think that's like endemic in both Rio Bravo and, uh, Night of the Living Dead, which is like Rio Bravo's like, oh, we got your guy, and there's a siege, and who's on the good side, and there's just swarms of guys coming. But uh, Night of the Living Dead, it's almost more of like a, a dark, like a, a spiritual force or something, which this feels like yeah. just an endless stream of zombies, and it almost accomplishes that too. Uh, yeah, it very much does have that that zombie feel to it. I think because it does such a great job of establishing like the just like complete inhumanity of the the gang members and just like that I, the iconic like <laughs> murder of the child is like such a, such a, a scene that's imprinted in me of just like I, you kind of can't believe it even though it doesn't really you watch it in 2023 and it's like well this seems kind of tame but it's still kind of it still hits when people talk about uh warriors uh the or what is it the warriors the the walter hill yeah and, yeah uh this is what I think they're they're talking about. Like I, this okay. is what I want when they're when they're talking about the warriors. It's just like warlords, like yeah, the warlords, like this gang. I, I forget the gang's name. Do, do you remember? It's a uh, in assault on precinct thirteen. I yeah. don't remember what they what they referred to as. I don't know. Anyway, it has these yeah. warlords, and they're like just like bloodthirst. Like it's it is almost zombie like. It's uh lawless and it feels like it's shot so well like these groups work well and they're coordinated and they have geography and maybe that's on yeah. the hawk side of it you really understand uh action geography uh, i'm not like an action guy i think the way, way like some of our friends are but i think i focus <laughs> a lot on context geography and like how right. it moves in a scene yeah it's i mean it's exceptionally well put together i think it like thinking about it the i don't think any of the gang members have any dialogue whatsoever they just kind of <laughs> exist as like these entities that move through these very like barren desolate streets and just kind of indiscriminately kill anything they come across often like when they're on screen it, the score is just kind of going like it's almost like oh, such a great score, yeah. while they're on and um i mean they're like it's very spare i should say like uh, it it almost doesn't need the dialogue. It's able to fit so much, and maybe that is part of the Western end zombie thing that's happening there, right? Um, and of course, like westerns and horror also do have a lot that they could like cross over very easily. Um, there is a, a sense I I don't know like what it's setting up for, but it feels like this is like an impetus for like the way that you would make like a economical like uh, movie with a hundred thousand dollars right uh i can't quite think of like who would have fit the mold after um but it seems to be what carpenter would do from here for sure yeah it's it's a very it's a it's a great jumping off point for what he is gonna kind of going to do for the the best part of his career and that stretch of just like incredible films he has because it really is pretty astonishing what he does with just so little here like when you kind of look at it as a whole piece it's like there's there's not much to it but it feels so like intense and in your face the whole time while you're in it 
And I don't, I don't know if I mentioned I watched it twice today. I, I think oh, those, did you really? like those rare movies where it's like, oh, I really love that. But uh, this one kind of like glides like butter. It's so fast. It really like, does. Yeah. There's so much economy to it that it kind of just like, like I didn't check the timing at all. I just kind of had the movie on and I was like, oh, fuck, it's over. <laughs> like, it's like. Yeah, it really does. It really does move. Yeah. It's, it's kind of shocking watching it. And that's something I also picked on, picked up on watching it today was you get to the point where it's like the siege is just starting to happen and you realize you're like more than halfway through the movie almost. Like <laughs> right. So much of it has gone by and it's just been like this really, like really, really well set up establishment of like what's about to happen, but you don't even realize how well it's been like building that tension. I thought about that the second time because I, like you're saying, like they don't say much, like the warlords aren't like given much characterization yeah. beyond but you understand a lot about them and how they function together as a group. Maybe like the ensemble is directed or uh, maybe the themes imply so much, but, uh, but yeah, I realized the second time, like yeah, you, not a lot has really been established by the time we get to the, the siege and then the movie kind of happens fully at that point. Like it was enough to get us there and that like, you couldn't have any less, but you wouldn't right. have more either. It's just, no, absolutely not. Yeah, it's so many amazing like puzzle pieces that are kind of just like slowly falling into place, but you don't really realize that's what's happening. And then you've got, you know, everyone converging on the police station and you've got uh, Napoleon, which is a fantastic name. And he's got that the knowledge of the gangs and kind of gets that information of like, oh, yeah, these guys are just going to they have no interest in anything but to completely destroy <laughs> this place. I mean, yeah, it just seems senseless. Like, there's no yeah. negotiation open on the table. It's just guys, like, flooding a parking lot and, like, really, really gorgeously. Like I say, I like a, I like context and environment. And I feel like yeah. I, I understand where things are and even where the outside threat is. Like, outside the, the police station there, I kind of understand where things are going. And, you know, not having phone lines. It's like they're everything is cut off from them right away and uh there's yeah they've got no connection to anything and i like the i did see just kind of browsing a couple of vague reviews on letterboxd like some just some complaints about like the cutaways to the patrol cops but i really love that stuff because yeah it's good it's such a great job of establishing that like everyone else just like doesn't think anything of it and they're just like their laziness motivates the complete like failure for any intervention i'm just like why should we bother going through there they're just hanging out in the empty precinct who cares we'll just kind of roll on by right there doesn't seem to be any possibility of an intervention even if they had telephones right uh, and that's part of like the um, i wouldn't say like the the zombie apocalypse but the cutting off of humanity from this this space like yeah besides being surrounded by bloodthirsty warlords they also have no touch with outside like they, they can't yeah. get out they can't talk and that's i think what kind of ratchets up the the tension quite a bit there right because you've got bishop who's who's there just like who's so convinced that someone is going to arrive at some point to help just by sheer chance of we're living in the city someone has to drive by at some point right so it's like you kind of start to follow along in that line of logic. So I think it really helps when you get that just those brief moments where you cut away of like, you're right, someone should be driving by, but they are intentionally not because they don't think it matters. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, 
Oh, and I should ask, you're like a Ethan Hawke guy. Have you seen the 2005? I have seen there? the remake and it is okay. terrible. It is it oh, is not good man. at all. It's okay. not worth watching. Oh, I see your score now. Yeah. A, a two <laughs> it's out not of ten. good. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So oh man, like some of my action friends on here do seem to like find something in it, but uh uh that's why I struggle with the genre. Maybe it's it's kind of like on the horror side where I'm like, you rated it that, but uh I it's you're and comparing I mean, I think it, it to a classic. Right. And I think it depends on what you're looking to get out of it, because I can okay. see maybe watching it as just more of like, yeah, this is just an action thing I'm watching. <laughs> and I'm sure it's fine, you know, if you're looking at it from that way. But like looking at it as a remake of a film that I think is a stone cold masterpiece, like I think it completely misunderstands pretty much everything that that Carpenter <laughs> is doing in this movie. <laughs> And it does like this these weird inversions of a lot of the ideas that just don't work at all for me. So like when I when I look at it from that perspective, I can't really appreciate any of the action stuff that it might be doing. From Jean Francois Richer, the uh, uh, famed director of uh, Gerard Butler's Plane. Oh yeah, <laughs> I did not see that one. Was that this year? That that was last year. Okay. Uh, I think he had like two last year. That was like it was like Greenland and Plane or something that came out like oh, a couple yeah, months. Who can keep track? There's there's actors like that, like Liam yeah. Neeson's one, where you get like two of the same movie in a month sometimes. Uh, yeah, it's weird where some funny. of those those actors kind of end up where you're just like, it seems like you are a huge A-list actor, but <laughs> you just kind of are in these like very terrible things that kind of just come out and they always seem like the same movie. Well, almost it's like if there's no commercial prospect at the end of it, they almost pair them together, like on the off chance that one of them would inspire the other like an audience like maybe one of these will hit and they almost like game yeah. together like that's yeah like the liam neeson stuff it just seems to be like i don't know you want something that's vaguely kind of like taken again just <laughs> sure show up to the theater and you'll get well, sort of that i guess he even has like uh what's the what's the movie cold something the uh liam pursuit neeson. i think yeah he even has like two, another movie that seems like a remake of that movie that he was <laughs> that's in. That's crazy, and that's crazy <laughs> because Cold Pursuit seems like a remake of Taken. So it's right. like it just keeps like squaring off into like this endless, <laughs> endless. <laughs> I wonder uh, if there's anything there in, in checking out the post Taken filmography of Liam Neeson. I feel like that could be like an episode. It could be like a tier ranking, but it needs to be like like Matt designed those like wonderful like, uh, right. tiers for uh, Nicole, <laughs> Nicole Kidman. Kidman yeah. yeah. There has to be like maybe it's like lines from his taken speech make up like the <laughs> the tears. The uh, uh, the other the unfortunate thing about that is then I would you know you'd have to watch twenty five Liam Neeson movies and I don't know how badly I would want to do that but yeah, maybe it's worth it in the end. <laughs> I don't know if I like him. I mean I I think I like Taken. Okay, uh, I guess oh I'm a dad. You know I could get through it. That's I true. Can, it's, I can do this. It's definitely cinema for dads. Like this Gerard Butler or Liam Neeson category. Yeah. I feel like John Carpenter of the horror directors is maybe one of the most dadliest. Like uh <laughs> I, I, would, I would agree with that, yeah. Like him just like being like, I just want to play video games and watch basketball and <laughs> I don't you know, and if it doesn't make me money, I'm not leaving the house. It's kind of like, yeah, that's that's dad behavior right there. I know he's he's the best. I love John Carpenter. I I know it keeps circulating every time he does an interview, but uh I feel like I've also heard this like five or six times. Like it comes up every year where he does an interview being like, I just want to play video games. Everyone's like, Oh, he said it. You know, it's just like, a, I, I kind of know. He does you seem know? To always say it. It's like, I think maybe some, some like publicity company is 
<laughs> asking him to do these interviews and he's like all right and then every time he's like why are we doing this i just want to play video games i've reached you know out what? i respect times. that <laughs> i've reached out a few times for interviews i know like our friends at daydream cast say he's like the ideal video game guest. right every time i've reached out they've they've written back and said like oh well you know mr carpenter sends your thanks or or when i did the tg10 they're like he looked over it and he loves the site and i'm like oh fuck like well that's that's John nice to Carpenter hear at least looked at <laughs> right. one of our lists i don't know if it was mine but you know uh, you know, at least he says something nice. He's not, yeah. you know, I most interview requests that aren't like PR initiated, right. nothing back at all. It's it's so difficult. Uh, I I struggle with this game dev story series. It's you challenging, you really have yeah. To dig. Yeah, sometimes twenty emails makes an episode. Uh, so I don't know. He seems like a just a really genuine guy, but he does the same interview every year, and then we say the same thing, and right. it's kind of like. <laughs> I kind of need a new cycle with the with Carpenter interviews. Maybe I wouldn't ask him that. I think that's what I'm saying. I wouldn't keep asking right. him the same things. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> you got to come up with something more interesting. It's kind I of would, the same thing with like me seeing any Scorsese interview. I'm like, why are we asking him the same six <laughs> questions every time he comes out again? I'm like, let's just ask him more interesting questions. He's in his 80s. There was that quote or meme this year, which is like, uh, yeah, uh, Scorsese saying like in response, like, uh, yeah, what changed in your family? It's like, well, I'm closer to death and I'm understanding my own mortality. And then they're like, uh, yeah, what do you think about Ant-Man 3? Right. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, how does that, like, I would ask John Carpenter about those Westerns and that would be like 90% of my yeah. questions, you know, like if I had that opportunity, like I read that new interview and I'm like, I get nothing from this, like. Because right. I know who John Carpenter is, I just maybe I'm frustrated with the way movie interviews go. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really it. It's like the when, of course, he seems like he's just tired of it when every time he comes out, he gets the same questions and he has to say right. the same thing every year. But it's like if if someone was to actually get a chance to talk to him and ask him interesting questions about stuff he actually cares about, then yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, so I'll keep emailing Mr. Carpenter once a year. I think it's you know? I don't I don't yeah. bug people if they if they're busy and don't want to talk and just want to play their video games. But um, I think it's a uh, you know I feel like there's still interviews there. Like I I wish we had more like Peter Bogdanovich's of today who want to reach out to these directors and actually frame their classic Hollywood inspirations. Right. <laughs> like, like we have Scorsese now on Letterbox listing all that. Like I want John Carpenter's Howard Hawks movies and right. I want to know what he thinks of, you know, not just Rio Bravo. I want to talk about the weird ones. Uh, I want to talk about the thing in depth, the, the <laughs> Hawks thing, you know. Uh, so uh, interviewers do a little better, you know. It's uh, I think that's a good note just in general. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely agree with that. Do a little better and uh and it's a shame because I think people do, but the only ones that get circulated are the ones with that quote, right? Like if it's, if he says the thing. Yeah. It's just, like, yeah, it's an, it's an unfortunate result of just a, a wider cultural thing where it's, you've got to get the clicks. And so you've got to bait Scorsese into saying he's built differently than Tarantino, even though that's not what he's saying at all. <laughs> which, which what he said is that Tarantino is a writer and I'm a director first and that's different. You know, it's yeah. not like he was, he's not like I'm a different breed. He's yeah, not exactly. like, so like I'm making uh, movies right. five decades in because I am different than Tarantino. He's like, I don't write my movies, so I don't have that challenge. Yeah. Uh, yeah absolutely uh so stop interviewing uh scorsese maybe also <laughs> i would agree with that. yeah that's, that's okay just let him make his his movies he wants to keep working 
let us have a direct feed to his letterbox where he just tells us about the movies he likes and the film foundation absolutely yeah let him go preserve movies interview him about the fucking film foundation that's what i would do you (laughs) know like so much more interesting stuff (laughs) i want to find out about the movies from uh you know his uh his letterbox top four from turkey you know (laughs) (laughs) absolutely i want to i want to find out about that too yeah yeah i want to know do you know any do you much about uh carpenter's new i can't remember what platform it's on but he's got a new series that just is came it like out. a peacock or paramount kind of thing i, like, I want to say yeah i think it, uh, it, it's one of those two <laughs> i, I want to say paramount because it seems like he would maybe do something for but although uh know, halloween was on, yeah what's it on though uh uh it what john carpenter on why suburban screams is almost a reality show uh, that's a weird question okay <laughs> you can see i get easily distracted by <laughs> interview subjects like they, they look for the worst quote okay so it's peacock uh okay that makes sense peacock, uh having a uh renaissance this month with <laughs> exorcist <laughs> five, five nights at freddy's and and uh john carpenter thing where he directs like one episode of a, a show i think uh yeah i'm not sure does he is it just one episode or do you do I the whole thing so. or okay. I, I, he might also be like showrunner like he might also be in mm, control yeah but usually that's that's typical if you get a big name director yeah. they do like scorsese directed like some of the first episodes of a couple of shows i think uh, i don't okay. know if it was like vinyl or you know like a yeah um, and ridley scott had that um what was it called raised by wolves was that the show he was on I yeah mean, on? yeah and that and like that first episode was really good because it was like ridley scott and i'm like <laughs> hell yeah this is like prometheus kind of and then like the next one so i'm like this is like a westworld not, not worth know? watching anymore <laughs> it's like this is westworld this is like a b-budget uh hbo okay, now yeah. uh, that happens all the time with tv right. that's why I, I don't watch tv <laughs> yeah i don't watch tv either which is why i'm like i'm probably not going to check this out anyway but i don't know i saw a trailer for it and it seemed very true crime adjacent which really turned me off even if i was interested in watching a show like i don't want to see carpenter involved with something that i find so terrible (laughs) yeah i just don't like the true crime industry i think it's so dirty and uh and um like some of our friends have been talking about like well you know uh, people have always shamed like horror movies and things that are like brutally violent but then there's a true crime industry about like grisly actual death and it's like promoted like that's a thing we should really get into like marathoning. right it's so widely just completely accepted as a thing that just exists and it's okay that it exists and it's okay that everybody has a podcast about a bunch of real crimes and everything like that and it's we can just talk about this that's okay like we have like mm, netflix not. series which seemed to, like was it was it zach efron is like <laughs> ed bundy or something like it's oh yeah something yeah. like that you know it's just like why do we have like really attractive actors playing yeah. these guys and I mean, I like like a Zodiac approach, like give me something a little meatier that's actually about like the investigation and has all these themes and like world class direction on it. I'll watch. Right. It's Um, yeah, it's definitely it's not that these these stories are impossible to to tell or to breach in any way, but it's definitely the uh, the format of a lot of this stuff that makes it (laughs) very, very uh, less than pleasant, I would say. Yeah, I don't know like where the edge is for me because I love In Cold Blood, I love Truman Capote, so I think there is like a way that I can maybe access it, which I think is more like the Zodiac route, but in writing. Right. Um, but I'm not going to listen to like serial likes for the rest of my life. You know, I I don't need to find out about people's like presumed innocence and and hear yeah. all the details of murder. I'm not 
I'm not on I'm not on a trial. I'm not right. on jury duty. I don't like podcasts and movies to make yeah. me feel like I'm on jury duty. Yeah, it's too too real and too morbid. I don't think I which is seems weird to say in the mode of <laughs> me watching horror movies all month, but it is definitely a very different thing. Why is it enjoyable? Like when Carpenter does something like this and it seems like, you know, it's like warlords. It's like, why, what makes that enjoyable versus like, well, that's, you know, maybe that could be unpleasant. Well, that's a lot to unpack. Um, that's a, that's a <laughs> why big do you question. enjoy this kind of, <laughs> yeah. Why do you enjoy this kind of street crime versus if it were non-fictionalized? But what is it stylization or direction? I mean, def- it definitely is stylization. It's also just, I think, the the knowledge that it is, you know, it is ultimately a, a fictive sort of fantasy and you're you're escaping into a completely different world where you're in this sort of desolate, empty neighborhood rather than watching, like, you know, talking heads of people talking about something that actually happened and, you know, you've got some host who's kind of trying to sort of weirdly, gleefully get something out of you with it. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's not pressing toward anything. Maybe there's like no mystery there here, you know. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to be based on any true thing. It seems very like in the movies. Uh yeah. As definitely. we say, it's more like from Night of the Living Dead. Maybe it's the same impulse that kind of drives this war too. Um, which is it's pretty unique, I think. Like I, I think people look at Black Christmas and they're like, Oh yeah, that was the original Halloween. I'm like, that's not quite it, you know. Um No. I don't think that's quite what Carpenter was doing. No, definitely not. I mean, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of different places to look at sort of the uh, the origin of slashers. I think you can argue for a lot of different movies. I kind of tend to consider a Bay of Blood to be kind of the uh, the the inception point of that sort of subgenre. But uh, I mean, Black, Black Black Christmas is also a very very big one to look at but you know they're also none of them are there or halloween halloween i think really set the stage for the proliferation of the genre because i watch that and i'm like that's just a perspective that's just saying like oh you're from the murderer's eyes that's what that's what black christmas right does. and i don't think even halloween is quite doing that no, uh, no i, I, I think, think so. we're looking for michael in the bushes i don't think we are michael you know no, I don't think there is any point where it's really that. It's it's definitely he is just kind of this this presence lurking in the background, and you are much more aligned with with Laurie than like looking at the the attacks through the the killer's eyes. Almost making him like a amorphous shape too makes him seem less yeah. like a like an actual serial killer. I think a when Rob Zombie does, it, I think that's where it sort of blurs the line. I'm kind of like, well. I don't really like serial killers, dude. You know, I'm like, uh, I'm okay, you know? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's interesting one to bring up because I think he almost does kind of blur that into kind of that other more unpleasant world in a yeah. way that I, I very strongly do not like. I know some people okay, are you don't fans like of those. No, I, I absolutely do not like the, the Rob Zombie Halloweens because I think it's just like, it's so much time trying to establish this character and like humanize him and trying to set up like here's the set of circumstances that led him to being evil and it's like it's just like that's not what i'm interested in at all i don't want you know a whole hour of like setting up who michael myers was as a child it's like it's just not necessary it's and it totally is against kind of the mythos of what i think works about halloween which is just he is just an evil presence and that's kind of all there is to it 
to me, he wasn't a child. To me, that doesn't exist in the shape. Like I, I feel like he's just like a force of evil, as we're saying about like the zombies or like the the gangs here. Like these people in this John Carpenter movie don't have outer lives. They, I mean, they right. don't have interior lives beyond what's shown on the screen. Maybe they only have like the exterior life of like this is a warlord and this is what they do. Like I don't picture them as like families at home or like what are these guys doing before this yeah. gang assault? Um, that's how I feel about like Michael Myers too. Like he's present when, uh, when Halloween starts, like when the yeah. season comes, like, I don't think he has a, another year where he's like hanging out. And I think uh, a lot of the sequels try to fill some of that in. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, it, I mean, it almost, it almost seems like antithetical to me to take that much time to do it when you can look at the first movie and, John Carpenter takes about five minutes to be like, he killed someone when he was a kid and that's all there is to it. And then (laughs) you've got all the backstory you need in like five minutes. And then Rob Zombie's like, well, here's 35 minutes of his horrible life and his life at school. And I'm like, this is just, you didn't need to do any of this since I can get the same thing in, in such a short amount of time. It's just, what can you actually manage to evoke with, with your atmosphere and Rob Zombie can't evoke much. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't make me curious. I think no, Uh, uh, I think it's like an absence of curiosity in Rob Zombie movies. I, I think he can do interesting things, but I don't think Halloween is one of the interesting things he can do. Uh, whereas Carpenter, I think, was just perfectly matched for that material. Yeah. And like uh, some of the people he works with are just the right people. Um, uh, do we have like one returning actor here? Uh, we have what's her name? Kelly Loomis. Uh, I think that's it, right? think so yeah i might be uh, or is it nancy i I think it's nancy loomis uh who of course he like takes the name for for the for the halloween character yeah nancy keys or nancy loomis as she's known on screen oh okay uh who's kind of like a regular in his movies so um yeah uh she's also in the fog so she has a little bit of a oh yeah that makes sense three even that's so yeah yeah so one of her uh one of the john carpenter players and he doesn't have that many of those you know uh yeah i I think like his style is also his music and his compositions are well let's say the directing writing editing music is done by him here yeah he has Uh, such authorial control over these first few movies and i think i mean even his later stuff as well but it it shines through so well in these these first few movies where he's got such a grip on everything and you definitely feel it come through he's done such a great job with with all these individual components you know what i was thinking like uh what do you think is it more than night of the living dead i don't know how you feel about that movie do you feel like it's almost a better version in some ways or is you know, Night of the Living to, Dead too formative to really say that? I mean, I, I I think probably certainly that, but and it is it has been a while since I've watched Night of the Living Dead. Um, so I would have to to revisit it where I've seen Precinct 13 several times now. Um but I almost like even though Precinct 13 is is definitely taking those ideas and kind of riffing off of that, I think they're in service of such different things that I don't like want to compare them against each other, you know. Um, especially like Night of the Living Dead is is ultimately so like bleak and hopeless, and I don't think that Precinct Thirteen is kind of aiming for the same the same ending of of just like everything is horrible. 
Right. Yeah. I don't think it, I don't think it quite goes there like existentially. Um, what about what they're doing with a, a black character? I think it's kind of interesting in that yeah, I think Night it of is the Living Dead like yeah. centers a black character in a way that almost makes them a hero in an atypical genre. Whereas uh, usually when we see black people in crime movies, they are the perpetrators of crime. They are not the yeah, police exactly. fighting against a mob that's against them. Um, so in some way, it's like a, the uh, Dwayne Jones and the um, Austin Stoker like comparison is kind of doing the same thing. It's achieving the same effect by the end in a way that's like, how do you place and like propagate your movie with uh, uh, black characters? And are you making it negative, like stereotypical or right. uh, kind of working against that and like ha having the audience like root in a different way? Yeah, and I, I think that's certainly one of the reasons that this movie works so well is that it's not playing into like any of that stereotype stuff. And the bishop as a protagonist is so like genuinely like complex and empathetic. He's cool and, too. Yeah, he's yeah, he's very cool. And like I I appreciate that he is he is always like trying to do his best to protect everyone at all costs and. He's, he's he's a great character, great protagonist for this movie. I think Carpenter does a great job of avoiding all of the the kind of negative stereotypes and managing to play up the the positive aspects. That's almost like the it's almost taken in both movies from like the Woody Strobe model of the westerns, like the black western hero, right? Which is often weaponized against the way black men are perceived in those stories. Um, so George Romero, of course, like also classically like inspired by these things because every director of this generation was um, right they were all working from those playbooks you know that that transition from uh america tells western stories about outlaws to america tells crime stories in like gritty right. uh 70s layered urban stories like the west has died and we've captured its histories and now we move them into the streets um is a very natural progression that you know, like even aforementioned Scorsese is very much like working off Western yeah, models. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, until he finally gets to make his Western this year. But <laughs> yeah, uh, he, I mean, the characters even talk about it in the first movie he makes. Like, who's that knocking at my door? Like, everyone watches Westerns. You know, it's it's obvious <laughs> right. where, he, where he's getting yeah. these structures of mean streets from. It's It could be a Western town. Uh, so I think a lot of these things are just building off of these blocks. But I think it's really interesting here to look at those black characters and and woody strode and like the black hero uh mythology in the american movie and what what these are both are doing there yeah i mean it's I, I think it's pretty phenomenal that like he there's so much influence and there are so many of those ideas that he's playing off and he is also like inverting and you know almost projecting a lot of these things and he's you know riffing on these movies and he's inspired by these movies but like you also almost don't feel any of that when you're in the ex yeah. in the moment and watching it like you never are thinking about it like oh this is he's pulling this exact like straight from night of the living dead like you're not thinking yeah. about that in the moment it's kind of like after the dust settles and you get to kind of take it all in and you're like oh wow this is it's amazing how he's able to weave all this stuff together and it really is like oh this is a a phenomenal like urban western and he's able to kind of translate those those dusty streets into this kind of empty neighborhood but you're not thinking about it you're just like oh man how are they gonna how are they gonna get out of this situation how are they gonna survive this i think that's so smart that he doesn't use urban sprawl as an overwhelming thing but it becomes like this uh 
this jungle of like separated space where people are, you know, where you know the cops seem like sheriffs or there, yeah. you know, there there is inversions there on what both of those movies are doing. And he doesn't literalize the Hawks or the Romero in a way that seems derisive to, to what we could say about Carpenter. It's very much like using those influences as like a, a thematic hanging for the rest of the movie. Uh, I, I just love how like simple some of the shots are and how effective they can be. You really just need yeah, you know, yeah. an ice cream truck and a cop car to make tension in a scene. Right? right. It's not much. Yeah. Like he, he doesn't have, because it is such a small budget, like he doesn't have much to work with as far as like, he's not doing any crazy practical effects or anything like that, but you know, all you need is a is a good squib, and you can make a very terrifying death out of a out of a kid by an ice cream truck just uh, coming back for the vanilla swirl. And you kind of know how it's going to go when she approaches. It's yeah. not going to be a good result. But then, just kind of how it frames and blocks that, and the guy kind of like walks into the window, and she's like, "Oh, I got the the wrong vanilla swirl." Like, if she just settled for her vanilla cone, I think the right. lesson is she wouldn't be dead. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you get that idea because when they when they go to attack the ice cream truck, the the driver and you realize they're not really after anything. It's not like they're, you know, robbing him or trying to get any money. It's like they're just they just want to fuck him up. <laughs> there's there's really no rhyme or reason to any of it. And I think it's it's you get that kind of terror of like, oh, these guys are kind of capable of anything very, very early on. Yeah. And like of, of these crime stories where it's just like kind of isolated. um it almost feels like it reminds me of like Sydney Lumet also direction wise. Uh, oh yeah, a very like hard boiled like city crime story. Um, that's kind of like taking off these uh, classic elements. Uh, what's that one? Uh, Dog Day Afternoons. The one I'm yeah, thinking yeah. of, yeah, which is that. like uh, hard boiled. Everyone's just kind of like sitting in there waiting for you know right what they really need like you know like the gotta smoke thing kind of just makes me think that. that's such a great yeah such a great repeated like he really does like play with like these these great little comedic moments throughout it and i think you get so much mileage out of napoleon as a character in that performance of just like whenever there's a whenever there's a pause in the action it's just like hey you gotta smoke <laughs> yeah i was it must have been Okay, what year was this made? This was 1976. Yeah. So one year after Dog Day Afternoon. So it's okay. very plausible that, yeah, that that's a real connection too. Because Lumet, of course, is one of the great directors and, yeah. and story directors on this podcast. Another one we started with. Uh, uh, our first episode ever was Halloween. So uh, Carpenter does go pretty far on the show pretty far yeah back. still still revisiting those those movies every year <laughs> you just did was it five you did this year it was was it four this year or four or five <laughs> they're they're all blending together <laughs> it's funny well, that the, what i did last week the <laughs> the thorn trilogy definitely does all blend together for me i could not really differentiate those three movies so it must be five because we had the comeback already where the girl puts on the, oh, the okay. clown mask yeah, at yeah. the end and and this is the one where uh, Michael wears the clown mask and she wants to stop for the smokes. And and they're like, well, you know, uh, and she thinks it's her boyfriend because her boyfriend's named Michael. And so <laughs> good cigarette gag there. Yeah, those, those are some Halloween, such a strange franchise as a whole. I, uh, it's, it's, I have so much fondness. I'm such a huge fan of the, the 78 movie and also Halloween three, but that's, you know, totally disconnected from, 
from Michael Myers as a character, but most of the Halloween movies are are very bad. It ranks pretty low on like the the holistic franchise ranking scale. Though I keep discovering that other franchises are very bad. Like a, a so we talked earlier in the the community about the Exorcist rights and oh yeah, thinking about whether Halloween was a bigger franchise because Exorcist, of course, like adjusted for inflation, is the largest horror movie of all time. And that was like a craze that will never really be matched, like in a cultural right. phenomenon kind of way. We're never going to have a, um, what would you call it? Like a one cultural moment around one horror movie ever again. That's going to define the space. Yeah, of I think 10 that's years. impossible like now. That's, just, that's over. Yeah, the way uh, things release, there's no way to do that. Yeah. And, and I mean, horror movies, like, I think maybe Get Out is probably the one that's closest to, to yeah, what we're having there. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it will be looked at the same way. It's like extras. Maybe. I mean, Peel is an amazing filmmaker. Yeah, so. it's it's hard to say. And I think like now, especially we're at a point in in kind of the, the 2020s era of horror where it's like horror seems so much more insular. And you've got this very specific community that is dedicated to horror and wants to, you know, get out and see these things. And you'll have these big releases like, you know, Talk to Me being the big one this year. But yeah. I imagine that if I go to most people that I just everyday people that I know and ask them if they had seen or heard of talk to me, they probably haven't. So that's true. I wonder, I I've wondered about that. Even today, I was thinking like, does the average person know my two favorite horrors? Yeah. Right. Like I, I think some years it's very possible if get out or Nope or the exorcist say was your favorite right. horror movie that year, literally everyone in the world will know what you're talking about. But what's mine? What's um, Infinity Blade uh, or Infinity Pool? <laughs> Not Infinity <laughs> Blade, the iPhone game. Uh, Infinity Pool, the uh, Brandon Cronenberg movie. Uh, does anyone outside of our people know? Yeah, I I kind of doubt it. Yeah, and looking at my list, I think my number one would be Ennis Main, which is like nobody, okay. absolutely nobody is. <laughs> definitely nobody's heard of Ennis Main out of outside of these circles. So okay, well the, yeah, I have that one above Infinity Pool. If, if we're counting that as like direct horror, that yeah, of I, course. I would think so. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense too. And so, uh, what's next after that? Uh, Skinnerink, uh, uh, <laughs> beloved by our community. Variant two, which is seen by two hundred people. It's like, yeah, that's that's so small. It's like who's yeah. who's gonna see that? It's also just like an accessibility thing. I think you pretty much have to buy a DVD to see that one. I think you either have to buy a DVD or have been in Justin DeClue's stream. Right. Two ways to <laughs> very, have possibly seen it. Very small uh, communities there. By the way, archive.org, you could like search on Google for the Joe Meredith movies. I just went through all four that are released. I, I fucking love them. So I guess that's, you know, people say it's a terrible year for horror, but I'm like, you kind of find your corners if you're like into this kind of thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's always, I think in a lot of cases, it's like, it's a terrible year for anything when you're looking at, you know, the, the, the four or five biggest yes. things that release in any right. given year. But, you know, if you actually that's a problem, are, right? <laughs> Like, yeah, it's, it's when you're in weighing... these horror communities and you can find the the deeper cuts and the stuff that's actually like made by people that are passionate about it. Then yeah, you can find great stuff any 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 year. Because it's kind of like the auteurs are between their years. I mean, Robert Eggers is going to have Nosferatu next year or something. Yeah. It's like Jordan Peele is going to have the the sequel to Note next year. Um, all these directors are doing either new horror projects next year or they're not doing horror projects this year who traditionally do horror. Right. So. I don't I don't know what people want like uh, I think you're right that they just look at like 
okay, what are the top selling yeah. movies of the year? It's like Five Nights at Freddy's, Exorcist. Uh, right. Yeah. It's when you're looking at Five Nights at Freddy's and The Exorcist Believer, it's like, yeah, it's probably pretty easy to say it's a terrible year for horror, but there's stuff out there. You just, you know, you have to actually be able be willing to seek it out. I even liked uh, Scream 6. That was this year, surprisingly. Like, it, I mean, it's been, it's a long tale of what comes out now. Uh, Saw, we had a great Saw movie this year. That's like, so horror can't be like in the worst place it's ever been because we had we right. had years where a saw movie was literally you know like a fine saw movie it was one of the better releases that year <laughs> exactly one. and yeah, this I year think... it's like that's number 10 right <laughs> <laughs> i think there's always there's always something for everyone if you again if you if you're willing to seek it out and look in the right places a lot of the times i am not a fan of the new kind of style of this this 2010s horror stuff and i'm not a fan yeah. of, of scream six or talk to me and or you know stuff like uh barbarian but there's plenty of stuff that's still releasing that I that I like a lot. Uh, when we, Evil we Works had, just came out this week, that's a great yeah. one. Yeah. Oh, is that good? That's by yeah, the Terrifier really guy, right? Mm-hmm. No. Oh, uh, no, it's an it's Argentinian okay. movie, I believe. Okay, that's Argentinian one. Okay. Yeah, really good. So Argentinian horror seems pretty dark. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. Oh, it's because Terrifier three had that that preview that's coming out. That's, oh that yeah. Is in my head. Um, Damien uh, Leone. We had a uh, Evil Dead Rise was a lot of fun. This oh year. yeah, that's uh, yeah another one that was like so much earlier in the year that I kind of it's already it's already out of my head. But yeah, I, I liked that movie a lot. I like the Last Voyage of Demeter and Knock at the Cabin is kind of like mid level horror. You know they're they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, it's kind of on the on the border. I'm definitely we're we're in the minority of people who are fans <laughs> of Demeter, but it's a good movie. I don't know why because it's so efficient. It's just like the boat part of Dracula, which is yeah. kind of like I'd like people to make like small sections of horror novels that are like the biggest horror part but uh yeah i think people are uh kind of overlooking you know they're you can't just let perfect get in the way of good with something like horror movies like you can't just need a movie to be the new exorcist like yeah exactly I, I don't mean, remember how we got to this this point in yeah, our conversation what were we talking about like horror franchises, franchises properties yeah. halloween john carpenter and what's changed i guess with, with directors like there's not going to be a, a monoculture around a director quite like right. halloween or the exorcist had been and uh maybe that's fine you know i mean like yeah john carpenter's like lower budget movies also weren't the biggest movies of those years so if it's uh enya's men or uh you know uh infinity uh blade as i'm calling it <laughs> yeah i mean so much stuff ends up you know it's it's quiet the year it comes out and then it gets picked up and kind of has this slow cult following that builds so maybe there's stuff that we've seen this year like variant two that uh, yeah. will end up with a a larger following at some point where people kind of go back and, and reappraise it i think people need like movies to be immediately like of the culture now like they need them to be right. crowned right away whereas like even some of the biggest movies that we talk about today weren't popular the year of their release or Maybe they came out on video and became popular. Right. Uh, like I imagine yeah. this movie that we're talking about today probably wasn't like, you know, I'm sure it did fine. I'm sure it wasn't like the biggest movie. Yeah, probably year. not. I mean, because Carpenter wasn't really like a huge, huge director until Halloween. So I, I would imagine that this I'm not, I I it's a good question. I'm gonna look it up because I'm curious what kind of the mm-hmm um reception to mixed reviews and unimpressive box office earnings were the like it's it's uh 
things age differently than than they come out like talk to me might be considered you know kind of a cult thing in 15 years I'm fascinated reading this article. Okay, what else? <laughs> I'm distracted, uh, distracted, but uh, apparently Dan O'Bannon reluctantly attended the LA premiere because he was jealous of Carpenter's success, and he was dis- <laughs> he was disgusted by the film and told Carpenter so. O'Bannon saw a reflection of the coolness that Carpenter displayed toward him in the film's casual disregard for the humanity of its characters. It reminded That's him great. of how easily their friendship had been discarded. Wow, I did not know there was such <laughs> bad blood between O'Bannon and Carpenter at this point. I'm not really finding the box office here. I don't know if you found anything, but uh, I didn't find any numbers other than, other than unimpressive box office earnings. So yeah, like I'm I'm seeing some releases got like ten thousand dollars. Yo, it's not like it's not like these movies made all the money back then, right? So I, so we have a strange standard in like a, a world of Marvel yeah. releases being accepted as the, the monoculture. Well, and I think especially now, very specifically in the last few years here, it's like now everything seems so specifically tied to opening weekend. And it's like if something's not successful immediately, it's just like, well, this is a write off. It's a total failure. There's no even really chance for things to kind of build organically anymore because there seems to be no even interest in that. And I think that's you know, both audience and studio. It's like studios immediately just pull things out of the theaters and then audiences, I'm not sure, either care as much, you know, about seeing stuff a few weeks after it's out. It's it's interesting. But yeah, it's like there's not really a chance for that stuff to just build. It's If it's a failure, it's a failure and we're just going to dump it on, you know, streaming now. And some of them should get second, third chances. I mean, none right. of them. Like if something goes to streaming, it's never hitting the video market if it wasn't a success. Yeah. Uh, Netflix will only commission their best films to go to Criterion or whatever. They're not yeah. They're not going to go through their their thing and be like, oh, nobody saw Other Side of the Wind, the best movie we ever produced. We're not going to put that on disc. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, that's been, you know, for five years, we've been asking them just to do that. That's all we want Criterion and Netflix to do, you know? Yeah. There's so much. Even the best stuff gets lost. So what chance does a mediocre movie have? Right. Yeah. And stuff gets lost. It's like even I was seeing earlier today that Netflix, a movie that Netflix bought at a festival and put on Netflix as like one of their originals is now getting pulled. Like they're taking it off Netflix and it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And like, passing we... was fine. I mean, like, uh, what are they going to do? Like, I see that there's a streaming change, like, in the market now where companies are going to take their best stuff because only Netflix is succeeding. And they're going to put their shows on Netflix and, that you know, the other streamers are going to have to be more adaptive. But what what's Netflix going to do? There's not, like, there's not another service with a bigger reach than them. Right. They can't like they can't sell it off to Hulu and get more views than than Netflix. Uh, and it, it's frustrating because there's like it's one of those award movies where it's like there's a good Tessa Thompson Ruth Nega uh, performance that was uh, nominated for a lot yeah. of critic awards. And there's like a history and at least like some awards history there as kind of like handsome like black and white photography. And it's like well why uh, why pay they paid 15 million at festival yeah, for that movie and you just kind of wonder what the the reasoning behind like taking this stuff off is but it's kind of like even regardless of that when the promise of streaming is just like well you've got easy access to everything and now you can watch anything anytime and we've got these huge libraries and it's like but if i don't know that anything's going to be there on any given day then you know what good is this promise of access 
possibility, especially if this is no longer available anywhere else. You know, when when something that has no physical release gets pulled off Netflix and they're the ones that own it, then it just doesn't exist anymore. Especially like when you get like directors like Rebecca Hall, who like had her acting break with Nolan and then like went into directing chair and it's a woman's debut feature yeah. that that in one month nobody can see. Like she's made one movie and it's good. I mean it's not a great movie. Yeah. But she's made one good movie that won't exist in a month. It's just like and also this history and like the regulation of black cinema and what the history's been for black performers. Uh, to have this movie about colorism and and like passing is black yeah that being the one that you take off i think it's just like that is bad for cinematic history in general oh very much i mean it's you lose so much just because it's also like algorithmically driven it's like netflix especially i think is is very like egregious with it but it's you know they they put something new out out and you see the netflix top 10 for the week and it's a you know people talk about it for a weekend and then it disappears and if Netflix doesn't care about it anymore, then it just kind of gets slowly cycled out of anything that pops up on anyone's, you know, homepage and then nobody sees it anymore. It's not the same thing as like browsing a video store where there's something that's always in the same spot that you can always go find. Absolutely. So like, a, you know, some of our movies that could have been destined to become classics might even right. fall through those cracks. Like, because uh, how do think... you even find it? You know, it's, <laughs> right. it's you're only given Netflix only gives you what it thinks you want to see, so you can't really have that much organic discovery. And if it's gone, it just doesn't exist. So exactly. I, I don't know what a future is for these movies once more stuff starts being re- removed and they start having a process for it. Right? Yeah, it's it's pretty sad. Like the, every time I see that stuff, I'm just like, this is it's really unfortunate. Definitely drives me to be like, I need to just collect more physical media and actually own the things that I want to watch because i have no idea if it's going to be around for that much longer anywhere else and if you want to watch on netflix anyway with all their crushed blacks and just how how bad the compression is yeah it's it's not ideal yeah it's a lot of people don't think about it but it, it really is it's just like i think the the huge downside of a lot of streaming is it just doesn't look as good and you whether you're thinking like a lot of people i think just don't care which yeah, I don't think if, if you don't care, you know, that's that's fine. But you really are losing a lot when you are are seeing it through this this forced lower quality. And I think especially what frustrates me is I, I saw uh, Fincher's The Killer this week and it looked fantastic on the big screen and it looks amazing. And I'm just like watching it thinking people are going to be watching this in their living rooms and they're going to be losing out on, you know, the nuance of this phenomenal cinematography and I know these these most people's audio systems are not going to be support the fantastic Trent Reznor Atticus Ross score. Yeah, right. Like I I only saw Make on a right. small screen and it looked terrible. Like the the artifacting to make right. it look like an old movie looked so fucking fake. And I'm like, that is because Netflix has trouble with something like uh, cinematic fuzz and like uh, burn marks that are like intentional and digital. Right, which designed. is like. Netflix is, you know, hiring these big name directors to come onto their platform and make these movies and then they can't even support like the maze to make them actually look like they're supposed to. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so John Carpenter in closing, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, my dog is uh, snoring now. I mean, I keep trying to like rouse and like to like semi awake. So. <laughs> well, I can't hear it. I don't know how much it's coming through okay. on the recording, but he's had an eye infection. So he's on a little Benadryl here. So he's kind of 
Honked out. Just zonked out over there. Oh, no, if I stop rubbing his chest, he's going to start snoring. Okay. <laughs> I do think I should probably call it and just let him get some rest here. But it, right. It's well, been really good. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great time talking about Carpenter and a lot of other things that aren't Carpenter, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, for such a focused movie, this is an unfocused podcast. As we say, our... Uh, you could see how our predilections for our list get a little bit scattered exactly. <laughs> and why we shouldn't present um, awards movies for five different weeks. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm happy to come on anytime you need someone to to fill in and ramble about whatever, uh, whatever's on our minds. So thanks so much, buddy. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, we'll have you back soon. Maybe, maybe we'll even do that thing. <laughs> wrapping this year, but uh, you know, coming months. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on Cal. Uh, find the stop recording button <laughs> they moved everything uh ai companion uh, has shifted where my stop recording is oh, okay goodbye folks thanks for listening <laughs>